When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 429 of Sustainable Minimalist. This is a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. On today's show, I have a goal, and my goal is to get you wherever you are at in your growing your own food journey, wherever you are at, and help you take it up just one little tiny notch. Growing our own food, or at least something, growing something is a vital self-sufficient skill that is, thanks to our industrialized food system and all the environmental consequences that come with it, that self-sufficient skill of being able to grow stuff, we collectively are losing that skill. And so today, wherever you're at in your growing journey, whether you can't keep a potted plant alive, whether you have a bustling garden outside, wherever you or somewhere in between, wherever you're at, my goal today is to get you motivated, inspired, and specifically give you the how to grow slightly more. So to help me do all that is Kevin Espiritu. He is the brains, the face behind Epic Gardening with millions of followers online. Kevin has a new book coming out later this month. It's called Epic Homesteading, Your Guide to Self-Sufficiency on a Modern High-Tech Backyard Homestead. And yes, that's right. Kevin runs a homestead, but his homestead is only 0.3 acres. So think about that. Holy moly, Kevin is on the show to explain what he grows and how he grows it, but more specifically to hone in on your next steps on your own growing journey. Kevin, so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well, and congratulations on your upcoming book. It's a manual of sorts, isn't it? Oh my goodness, everything I didn't know I needed to know about homesteading, I can find it in your book. Tell us about yourself, who you are, what you do, and more specifically, how did you find yourself homesteading on 0.3 acres? Wow. I need to know yeah. it all. <laughs> yeah, no, happy to. So thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of an atypical case, I think. I, I did not grow up gardening or homesteading, and I grew up on an even smaller you know, footprint than I am on now. 0.3 acres, obviously, you know, in some areas that's considered quite small. I just grew up in a standard suburban home in San Diego, California. I didn't grow up with any of those skill sets. And so in my early 20s, found myself coming out of college. I had gotten an accounting degree, didn't really feel called to uh, participate in that career path after watching some of my friends do it and kind of struggled with where to go and fell into 
uh, video game addiction. I played video games like crazy in my early 20s and was like, I need to break this pattern. And that's what got me into gardening uh, with my brother, which then got me into homesteading today. Uh, and the way I think about it is it can be homesteading. I mean, a lot of people think, well, you, of course, you can't be homesteading on 0.3 acres. You're not 100% self-sufficient. And my whole point is that it's better to do something than nothing. And so where I sit today on on my, you know, 13,000 square feet, I've got more eggs than I could ever need. I've got you know, enough produce to to give family and friends. I can't even eat all of it. I have 25 fruit trees. I mean, I'm producing a significant amount of my own produce and nutrition. And I don't need, you know, the five plus acres and all the sort of stereotypical things you might think when you think of the word homesteading. Yes. I'm glad you mentioned that because when I think about a homestead, I think about multiple acres, lots of animals, free pastures, and an awful big time commitment. Let's talk about food chaos for a minute, something that I've thought a lot about in my own personal life, and then you aptly described it in your book. Talk to me about homesteading as a means of staving off food chaos, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, the thing I find so interesting is the narratives that are out there, right? Like, you know, no matter what your sort of political leaning is always that, you know, they're doing this to our food, or this is bad for the environment, this, that, the other. And all of it, to some degree, has a kernel of of truth in it, right? I mean, if you think about the way that we monoculture large crops like corn, soy, wheat, etc., and what that might be doing to the topsoil, what you then have to do to supplement those farmlands with sort of chemical fertilizers and how the sort of topsoil of America is basically blowing away, uh, what that does to the nutrition of the food. Of course, some of that food is eaten by humans, some of it is eaten by animals, and then some people eat those animals. And so what you eat eats is also very important. And so if you think about how that all kind of plays together and you look at the health trends that are going on specifically in America, but really around, around the world as well, I sort of go, well, I can't really blow that system up. Like I I don't have the means or the power to do much about that, but it's actually, you know, quite enjoyable and rewarding to grow my own greens, my own herbs, my own fruits, my own vegetables, and then learn simple, easy ways to prepare them such that at least I don't have to participate in some part of it if I don't want to. And then I know what went into the food. Uh, And, you know, for me, I think it's really important too, to like eat fresh food um, if I can. You know, I still like the occasional pizza, burrito, et cetera, like everyone else. But to me, like making simple soups and and some of these simple recipes with fresh produce, you just feel different. And that's that's what I can control, right? And I can do it right here at home. So I almost don't even have to worry so much about the grander scheme as long as I know I'm I'm doing something for myself. Mm. Yeah. Um for listeners to this show, we already know, right, that the large-scale industrial food system has hefty environmental costs associated with it. But you mentioned food quality there, perhaps nutrient level. Do you know off the top of your head, like, it is homegrown food in soil that is healthy? Uh, is that food it's probably better tasting, but is it more nutrient dense? You know, I would not know on a raw sort of like peer reviewed study level, which ones are, which ones aren't. And certainly there's even situations, you know, to to a counterpoint against what I'm saying is there's situations where if you're growing it poorly, then you might even say that 
that produce could be worse, right? I would call that maybe the gardener's lesson. You all, you all, as, as you grow, you, you learn how to grow better and better produce. Um, it, it's kind of like the whole, what you eat eats thing, right? Like what, what a cow eats is going to impact its nutrition profile and, and so on. And well, what plants eat is what, what's provided in the soil, uh, and, and what the life in the soil is effectively unlocking for those, those plants. There's also a level of sort of the time from harvest to consumption where you have like enzymes that, that may degrade over time. I remember there was a book I read, I think they just came out with a documentary, the blue zones book. I think I read it like 10 or 12 years ago where one of the components was the freshness of the food. So basically from harvest to consumption, how quickly that process happens. And I know I'm sure listeners know that lettuce, um, a lot of these popular plants, lettuce, herbs, etc. most of them, especially if you don't live in a California or a Florida, are transported for, for many thousands of miles before they get to you. So you, you could be eating lettuce harvested a week and a half, two weeks ago. To me, uh, it just sort of follows that we did not evolve to consume in that fashion. So it's unlikely it is a healthier way to, to consume. Mm. So for me, there's a big jump that happens in my mind between having a garden versus having a homestead. So I have a two-part question for you, and the two parts are completely unrelated. The first is, what do your neighbors think? Because your neighbors are pretty close. I was able to see some photos of maybe aerial views in your book of your homestead. So that's question number one. And question number two is, how much time do you spend just planting, caring for, harvesting your produce and caring for your, I believe you said chickens. The neighbor thing is an interesting one. That's probably the question almost everyone goes to because they think HOAs, they think suburban homes, right? And, and most neighbors obviously aren't into that approach to life. I would say for the first year or so, maybe I was getting a little bit of a questionable look because I was setting up the property and it had gone from kind of a rundown front yard, overgrown grass, all sorts of, you know, mess in the yard to a different type of mess in the version of me trying to fix all of that up. And it was just a work in progress. So I think they appreciated that someone was at least making it look better than a bit of a junk heap in the past, but it did take some time. And then I really tried to make the front yard look beautiful, presentable, you know, landscaped, not like your classic conception of, of a farm or a homestead. In the backyard, I get a little bit more free form, a little bit more, you know, down and dirty, and maybe it wouldn't go so well if that was in the front yard. And so that's something I really focused on. Neighbors haven't really said too much. I think they appreciate it. I'll drop some produce off here and there. No one's really been called to to homestead themselves, which I always wonder, like, you know, you would imagine maybe someone would be influenced, but uh, so far, not really, but that's okay. And then as far as the time, that's almost a dealer's choice. I mean, you could take it all the way to the limit or you could really use some techniques to make it a little bit less uh, time involved. And we do have some help here at the homestead because, you know, Epic Gardening, we run this as a full-time business. But you'd be putting in at the setup, I mean, it, it's quite a quite a bit of time, right? You're, you're digging holes, you're planting orchards, you're laying irrigation, et cetera. But once you get those basic infrastructure pieces set up, you can put a lot of it on a version of autopilot, not zero effort, but take the chickens, for example, most of their care is a, a daily feeding and maybe a monthly coop clean out and just resetting some of the, you know, the coop in the hen house. That's about it. Hmm. Well, I have a very small garden. It is probably a fraction of a fraction of the size of yours. I'm wondering if you could 
talk to us about your biggest success as a homesteader, but also your biggest failure. Because I'm thinking about my backyard, and if I was going to, you know, start a homestead, you convinced me. I feel like I'd have a lot of failures. So biggest success and biggest failure. Yeah, biggest success I would say is the fruit tree orchard because you know once once those trees are established and they're healthy and they're well taken care of, you really do get a ton of production for many 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 years, sometimes decades. That could have easily been the biggest failure if I had done it incorrectly because the flip side of that is it takes one, two, three years for a tree to really kick into production. And if you've cared for it improperly in those those years or you you know maybe prune it in a weird way and it it drops off, then there goes those years. Uh, biggest failures for me have tended to be crops where I've put a lot of time in and relative to the effort, I'm really not getting a whole lot out of it. And so I might think of something like an asparagus. Asparagus is a crop that I used to actually hate as a kid, to be honest with you. But now I've really found that I enjoy it. The problem with asparagus is it takes about a couple years to set up. Uh, once it does set up, it'll produce for 20, sometimes even 30, 40, 50 years. But it's very particular. And I grow in a climate, I'm here in San Diego, that I think would prefer, asparagus would prefer to be in somewhere a little bit colder. And so for me, I'm on year three now and I've gotten six spears maybe. Um, and even some of those I've like forgotten to harvest at the right time. So I didn't even really get them. And so when you look at that and then you walk down to the store and you're like, okay, it's like $1.99 to get this asparagus. Sometimes you have to laugh at yourself. Um, but I don't know. I, I consider that sort of just like taking your lumps and you know, all the citrus I get is is more than making up for that failure. Hmm. Well, I bet those six asparagus spears tasted phenomenal because you That's grew them. <laughs> yeah, when you grow it yourself, it's it's it does it does hit a little bit different. Okay, but you did mention San Diego, and I have visited San Diego. I actually had an aunt who lived there. She had a, an orange tree in her front yard. She did nothing to take care of it, and oranges just fell from that tree, like rain. <laughs> and she found them to be a nuisance because there were so many and then she'd have to go clean them up off the lawn. So I say all that to say that you are in a zone that is amenable to growing year round. I live in the Northeast, 6B, if anybody knows um, their hardiness zones. The ground is frozen for a couple months out of the year. Could I still homestead? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and there are many who do it in in a region similar to you. It's just the approach is, is very different. And so, you know, you'd, you'd be in more of a classic four season climate where you have very, I wouldn't say very, but you have more rigid starts and stops to your season. And you have, honestly, sometimes it's weird to say, but I, I get somewhat jealous of people who have true seasons because for us, it's difficult sometimes for me to peg when to properly grow a plant. So things like uh, anything in the brassica family of crops, so like a broccoli or a cauliflower or a cabbage, uh, for you is is very simple to know when to grow it. You can grow it basically from the early late winter, early spring, or you can grow it like in very late summer going into your fall before the winter frost comes in. And for me, I have to grow that basically through our winter, which isn't really a winter, and hope that the pests don't get it. All that to say, it's possible, and most of the shifts have to do with the timing of plantings, what to grow, when to grow it, and then you would have more of a, if you're really taking the homesteading thing to the max, 
you would have more of a put up for winter type of process at the end of the season where you'd really probably want to be getting into some canning and preserving and stuff so you could have some of that fresh produce throughout the winter. Whereas I, you're right, can go out and harvest, let's say, broccoli right about now. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. I would love to talk to you, Kevin, about how my listeners can take wherever they are at right now in their growing journey and elevate it slightly. So for I would say that probably a lot of my listeners have a small garden, maybe they have herbs on their windowsill, maybe some of them have some sort of growing system inside. Where would they go to you know, learn the next step? It just seems like there's a lot to know, a lot to learn and the stakes can be high. Aside from your own platform, like where where can they go and what would you suggest they do next? I mean, there are some local resources that exist and I think they've fallen a bit out of favor. M- most areas will have a Master Gardeners Association that's in the area. And those are people who've gone through a pretty rigorous uh, course of study and will actually just provide you free advice on what to do, what to grow, problems you might have that are specific to your region. Um, there's also county extension offices that are provided by the government. You can actually go in and uh, get a soil test done or, you know, ask to troubleshoot a problem. And then there's just like the free resources. I mean, the local library is going to have tons of gardening books you can kind of devour if you want to. And a lot of the wisdom in those old books 
is the stuff that that I'll take and and try to reconfigure and and make palatable for let's say a YouTube video that we might create. And so a lot of it is is old wisdom turned new once again. Um, I also think just kind of within yourself, if you've got a small indoor thing or you've got a small herb garden, I would just say like what is what is something you really love to consume. I, I used to say like what's easy to grow and just grow what's easy to grow and there you go. But you know, it turns out a lot of people don't like radishes even though they're easy to grow. So I, I get I get people excited about what they really like. You know, a friend of mine loves tomatoes. He doesn't want to grow anything else. He's only grown tomatoes for two years. Who cares? That's what he wants to grow. That's what's going to get him started and, and keep his momentum going. So why not let him have a 25 tomato garden? It's a little bit excessive, but <laughs> it's what keeps him going. And so get excited about a plant. If you want to make sauce, for example, that would be a great plant to start with um, and, and see what you can do to stretch your your garden next year. Okay, so yeah, those 25 tomato plant gardens, that speaks to me. There is nothing like a sun-ripened tomato. Tastes so much better than the greenhouse ones. Canning them, have sauce ready for the whole year. I love that tip of think about what it is you love to eat, what your family loves to eat, and work on honing those skills. Now, I saw in your book that you had a picture of one of those hydroponic tower systems. And I am getting targeted so hard for one right now. It looks beautiful. (laughs) Uh, There's a gorgeous lady in the ad standing next to her overflowing pot of hydroponic produce, hydroponically grown produce, I should say. What are your thoughts on those systems? Are they worth it? Or is it just another thing that's being sold? You know, it's interesting because it's how I started. Way back in the day, I, I didn't have a lot of space. I was in a townhouse uh, with a balcony that was covered, so there's no light. Um, and so I was like, well, how can I grow with, with no light? That's one of the major things plants need. And hydroponics came into the forefront for me. It was a custom-built system that I did back then. But you've started to see, like you said, I mean, I, I get targeted by those all the time too. Uh, these vertical systems with built-in lights that have a ton of little slots and you can grow a lot of produce – and the truth is they grow plants quite a bit faster, like 30-ish percent faster than in soil. Um, the trade-off really is that you have to actively manage that system because the soil is really what's what's growing that plant or helping that plant to grow. And if you take that away, well, you need to provide it its own light, its own water, its own nutrients, change that nutrients out. And some of these systems, I think, have done a pretty good job of abstracting that away for the beginner so that they don't have to obsess over for example, the pH balance or the parts per million of different, you know, fertilizers. Um, what I'll say though is they tend to be quite pricey, and there's nothing wrong with that if you can afford it. No big deal. And they also tend to want to sell you their seeds, their fertilizers, um, which certainly you can grab, but you, you just don't need it, right? And so I would say the way I'd make that work if I was going to do that, I'd be growing stuff that I can't get at the time of year I'm growing. Uh, maybe in your climate, that might mean I'm not growing, you know, fresh herbs and fresh lettuce and greens outside in December. Uh, those also happen to be the plants that have relatively high food miles, specifically the greens. Uh, and they tend to be on like a per ounce basis, quite expensive if you were to go buy them at the store. So like buying a head of lettuce, if you think about the weight you're getting uh, versus a potato or a garlic or an onion, it's not a lot. Uh, and it's quite expensive. And so you can actually make those profitable systems if you grow, let's say, 
cool, awesome types of, you know, maybe more rare, intricate lettuce that you really like, or, you know, basil or fresh dill. Cause honestly, you go to the store, those can be like five bucks for a little plastic carton of them. Oh, that's so true. And I never thought about the weight component. I will say though, you know, I've done some research on these systems and yeah, you have to buy in some cases their seed packets that are specially fitted for their system. You can't, you know, go get your own seeds. So is there a way that I could, instead of buying into the whole branded system, make one myself? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I mean, the simplest way to do it, there's these things called net pots, which is basically what a lot of those companies have modified. Uh, it's, it's just a little pot that has a lot of slits cut in it. And then you can put some sort of growing medium in that pot. A lot of people will use coconut core, which is a shredded sort of washed coconut husk. It's usually just a waste product that get, gets repurposed. And then you can put whatever seed you want into that mixture. Um, and you can actually take like a big PVC pipe and just drill holes in the side and put those pots in the side and then get a pump and have it pump up and down. It's basically replicating those systems. I, I totally agree. Like I have nothing against them. I actually enjoy using them because they do make the process a little more beautiful, a little more fun. But I've built many a DIY system that has performed quite well at a fraction of the price too. Hmm. So something that we've covered on this show before is the ease in which every single person can grow microgreens. Who knew it's so easy? It's simple, indoors. Uh, you have fresh microgreens that are beautiful in a week. Uh, and I do that still. I have a grow light. I mean, first of all, everything grows better under a grow light, in my humble opinion, microgreens included. But I did notice in your book, Kevin, that you have a section on sprouts. Tell me how a sprout is different than a microgreen and also how I could get started, because I think that might be, as we talked about earlier, my next little step. Sure. Yeah. So sprouts actually are the precursor really to, to microgreens. Um, so in, in the microgreens setup, as I'm sure you know, you, you've got a tray and, and usually you have got some soil in that tray and you densely seed the tray with microgreen seeds, which are just bulk normal seeds and let that sprout out. And usually about eight to 15 days, depending on the crop, you get a nice little mat of greens that you can kind of cut off and add to soups or salads or eat as is. And I know broccoli is a really popular one going around right now for I believe the sulforaphane, the health reasons, but sprouts, to be honest, is just the phase right before that. So if you take, let's say bean sprouts or pea sprouts, you don't even need to put it in soil. You can just put it in a mason jar, uh, soak it in water. Um, the soaking process really is just what's triggering that seed to break dormancy and, and start to sprout. So you'll soak it and then you'll just basically, you'll rinse the soil, sorry, rinse the water every day or two, uh, maybe a couple times a day if you want to be uh, safe. And once they sprout, it'll only take about three days. You can just eat them right then. Um, so it's actually uh, easier in a sense because you're waiting less long, right? Uh, and, and you don't even need soil or a tray and you, you really don't even need light because sprouts, typically when you bury a seed, right, it's underground and it comes up and then the leaves come out and that that's what needs the light. So they don't even need light. So I would say, you know, if you're really trying to give it uh, an easy effort attempt sprouts for someone beginning is is so simple. So I just want to make sure I 
got this. I can put seeds in water and they'll sprout and then I can eat them. Exactly. Yeah. So if you were to do like broccoli sprouts, you just grab like you can buy bulk seed online uh, and then you can just take like a couple tablespoons, put that in water, let it soak for overnight or something like that. Uh, and then rinse that water out every so often. Usually they'll, with if you get a sprouting kit, there'll be like a filtered lid. So you don't pour the seeds out, but you can pour the water out. Um, and then they'll start sprouting. You'll get that little white tail, which is that first root that's coming out of the seed. Um, and typically you'll eat them before they start developing the leaves. The leaves don't get too big and you just kind of boop, eat them up and, and you're good to go. Okay. This could not be easier. This is like, anybody could do this. I feel like my kids would really be on board with this. They love the microgreens. They love eating them, planting them, harvesting them. So if sprouts is even easier than that, it sounds like a great little afternoon activity for us to put some sprouts in some water. And, And the environmental benefits, of course, right? No food miles being traveled, made in my kitchen, A plus, right? So any more little like expert tips for those of us who are nowhere near you on our growing journey? Any other little tidbits for the indoor growers, the outdoor growers, and everybody in between? Yeah. I mean, the the best tip I could give someone, because I really focus on like, how do you reduce the failures that people experience when they garden? Because it's so discouraging. I would say... um, the quote that I love the most is, is that you don't really grow plants. It's like, oh, I grew a tomato or I grew a pepper. And the truth is the plant's a living entity, right? So the plant grows itself. Your job as the gardener or the homesteader is to give it the environment it likes to grow well in. So, you know, when we garden, let's say you were to create a salsa garden, right? So like tomatoes, peppers, onions, chives, whatever. The truth is, you know, if you really trace those plants back to where they evolved, in nature, they're not near each other for the most part. Some are, but most most are not. Um, and so where I'm going with this is knowing the condition of the plant. Like, what does that plant really want? If it could design its own environment, if it could speak and say, hey, I actually want more light than you're giving me. Um, that That's what gets you really good, I think, as a gardener, is understanding, okay, well, oh, well, no wonder my tomato is not doing so well. I'm actually giving it too much light. That's why the leaves are looking a little bit burnt, or that's why the tomato has a bit of a spot right here. It's because, yeah, it needs eight hours of sunlight, but I live in the high desert of Arizona. So actually, it might not need eight hours in this climate. It's too harsh, right? Versus maybe in the winter in New York, okay, that thing needs as much light as I can find, right? And so it's it's kind of thinking about the variables of how a plant grows and, and just adapting to your conditions. I think that was what makes someone a good gardener. Yeah, you mentioned something there. And I forgot the exact words you said, Kevin, forgive me, but the failures in a garden can be really, really discouraging, disheartening, can make us all just throw up our hands and say, <laughs> no thanks to this. I know in my early years of my garden, heck, I'm I'm still having failures in my garden. And they, they're, again, disheartening. They're not fun. You put all this time, effort, energy, in addition to the external resources you put into it, like the water, like the money if you bought uh, plants that were already not seeds. Well, even seeds cost money. So um, it's sad. It's really sad when something doesn't work out. But what I think is so important about gardening and homesteading and why I wanted to talk to you today is because 
The ability to grow your own food is one of those vital self-sufficient skills that seem to be we seem to be generation after generation getting further removed from. So tell me about your new book because your book it's called a book but I would call it more of a manual. Uh everything I needed to know and more I can find in your book. So tell us what's in it and where we can find it and when it comes out. Sure. Yeah, so it's it's called Epic Homesteading. Um and the idea there, I wrote a book, my first book ever was called Field Guide to Urban Gardening and the whole idea there was I'm not going to teach you how to garden, I'll teach you how to become a gardener, right? Uh like develop the mindset. And so it's 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 somewhat similar with this book. I mean, this book goes through rainwater capture, energy systems, solar, chicken keeping, uh, of course, gardening, developing a productive orchard using gray water systems. So for example, my laundry routes to an artichoke patch that I get an amazing amount of harvest from. I have an outdoor shower that routes to my citrus orchard. So I barely water my citrus, uh, at least not with, you know, sort of fresh city water. Um, and so it's really a tome, like you said, about how to start each of those, how to think about them and then the different ways you can approach you know, at my house, like you mentioned, I've gone a little bit extreme. And so I have 6,000 gallons worth of rainwater capture on my 13,000 square feet. But you can just get a rain barrel and you can get a rebate from the city and get started that way. So there's there's options for that. It comes out, I think, January 25th now. And you can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold, signed copies on our site and on Amazon as well. Unrelated question, Kevin, but did you see the new movie on Netflix called Leave the World Behind with Julia Roberts? I actually just watched that on a plane. Mm -hmm. So you'll be sitting pretty with your homestead when the rest of us are duking it out for food. So thank you. Some may have said I already left the world behind, I guess, you know, (laughs) a certain version of this world, I guess. Yes. Well, and you're providing the inspiration for the rest of us to follow. So thank you so much for giving me your time. I wish you much continued success and even more success with the release of your newest book. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, that's a wrap. My friends, show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 429. Now, before we say goodbye, I just want to ask how your no spend or low spend January is going. It is January 2nd. If you're listening on release day, day two, not so bad. Only two days so far. Yesterday on New Year's Day, I and my family, we went for a hike free. I made food from the deep freezer. So we cleaned the deep freezer out over the weekend and I found... Lots of food that I didn't know I had, frankly. So we thawed that out. We made a dinner out of it. And I think I can make a good eight to nine dinners just based on what I had in my deep freezer. So no money spent on anything that's not a need. And I'm feeling good about it. I hope you're doing well on your no-spend reset as well. Join us in our closed Facebook group, Sustainable Minimalist. We're talking all about it. I'll see you on Thursday. If you need me before then, reach out. See you Thursday. And take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.